0: The UK Investor Magazine podcast is brought to you in association with Oanda, the broker of choice for traders who want a smarter way to trade. Trade with Oanda and get one year's subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into European markets, in particular, the European equity markets. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Michael Field, who is the European market strategist at Morningstar. So Michael, thank you very much for joining us this morning.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here.
0: So we're going to be looking, first of all, at the macro picture. We're going to be looking at what's been happening out there uh, so far this year. We're going to be looking at the, the key themes. And then we're going to be moving on and looking at specific sectors that Michael's been looking at and where they see value as a business. But before we get into it, Michael, Please, would you be able to give us a brief introduction to, to yourself and a little bit about Morningstar, please?
1: Of course. So, um, I suppose Morningstar first. So, Morningstar are a global financial services company uh, headquartered in Chicago. There's many facets of the, the Morningstar business. I think a lot of people would be familiar with the fund writing business and, um, but we we operate in the the equity research space, so we're actually um, a pretty pretty decent sized team. We've got more than you know a hundred analysts worldwide. We have a, a pretty decent European base at this stage, so we've got quite a, a coverage list across Europe currently. And me, that That's I suppose, just to uh, just to, to lead straight into it, so I'm the European market strategist for for Morningstar in Europe, um, and essentially what that means is kind of. I take all the the equity research that comes across from our analysts and try to communicate exactly where we see value and exactly which sectors are interesting and what's going on in Europe as we see it.
0: Lovely, lovely. So we're going to get into those sectors a little bit later on in the podcast. But as I said, we're going to start by looking at the, the macro picture, if we may, Michael. So I think a good place to start would be... Yeah, probably the most volatile event so far this year. And that was the, the banking crisis, of course. So it'd be good to get your thoughts on the ramifications of, of what happened in March and whether you see it as a problem that can persist into the future or whether indeed, you know, from, from your standpoint, from what you saw, was it a bit of a storm in a teacup?
1: So I think the the answer, the short answer, is that it's it's somewhere in between. Um, it's you know it's important not to underestimate what happened last month, and it's also not it's important not to extrapolate events out too much and think that we're back in a, a second global financial crisis. So I think if you look at markets in general, the direction of travel was really positive. The economic conditions from December onwards seemed pretty good. You know, GDP seems to be kind of trending upwards across Europe, albeit very slightly. Um, PMIs, things like this, again, following the same path. And then we had inflation slowing as well, which is a really good thing considering how high it went. You know, back in late 2022, we were looking at inflation rates of more than 10%. So that all these things were generally kind of trending in the right direction at the beginning of the year. And that gave markets some encouragement to move upwards, which is what we were seeing. And then in March, that all kind of fell apart to some degree for a brief period of time when the banking crisis happened. So I think a few important things around that, you know, if it had just been a smaller bank in Europe or indeed one bank that we'd seen problems with, markets might have dismissed that as a one off issue. But the fact that, you know, one, that this wasn't just happening in europe it was happening in the us is a bit of a problem for investors and gets them concerned particularly when the banking sector is kind of so opaque and even in the institutional side of things you know how many investors truly understand the inner workings of a bank it's a pretty low number which is why everyone panics so much when something happens And then number two, it wasn't just a small bank, as I said, it was Credit Suisse, one of the kind of oldest and biggest banks in Europe. So that definitely um, frightened a lot of investors from that perspective. Where have we gone since then? I think think the big takeaway is, look, the government stepped in, addressed some of the underlying issues around banks. um, And on top of that, I think the main takeaway for for investors has been that we've gone through Almost a month now, where the situation's kind of died down, and we haven't seen any more contagion or things like this. And investors have taken confidence from that and decided, okay, let's let's keep pushing on. And you, you see that today, when you look at the FTSE coming close to its all-time highs again, it's almost like the banking crisis never happened.
0: Indeed, indeed, that that's something that we're uh, that we we'll pick up on on, on the FTSE One we I've got a few questions on that a bit later on the podcast. But just want to go back to something that you mentioned there, Michael, about rates, because that's probably after the banking crisis has been the second biggest cause of concern for investors this year. And of course, that's been something that's been in markets for some time. And at the moment, looking at the commentary that's out there and looking at views from analysts, it's very much focused on the US and what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing next. In your view, Michael, is that going to have a huge impact on European equities going forward, given that, of course, it's US rates, the US economy, and what's happening there? And I mean, where do you see policy going in Europe um, in terms of interest rates going forward and, and the overall impact on equities this year?
1: So you hit on a, a number of interesting points yeah. there. You know, you said that um, interest rates were the second biggest cause of concern after the banking crisis, which is completely true. But in fact, it's also tied in with the banking crisis itself. And banks had, you know, some of them had underlying issues, um, but these the catalyst for actual these issues coming to surface was, in fact, interest rates going up. So it's affecting us even more than we think from that perspective. Um, You know, you mentioned the Federal Reserve as well, obviously like Europe, you know, Europe's a huge market, but the US is even bigger. So we always look to the US for some kind of steer in terms of policy, interest rates, which way markets are heading. Um, And Europe kind of gets some cues from this. I think, you know, we're in the same place as the US in some respects, and then we're in a slightly different place than others. So Where we're the same seems to be about the direction of interest rates currently, both central, you know, if I look at the ECB, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, they all seem to indicate that rates are going to go higher in the short term. So that seems to be the, the direction of travel on that. Where things are slightly different possibly is around the reasons why rates are going up or the underlying conditions behind that. Now, in the US, you've seen inflation fall quite heavily in the last couple of months, which means that the federal reserve aren't under the same pressure to increase interest rates you know the main goal was to get int- to get inflation back to that kind of targeted level of around 2% and it seems to be heading back there now so while they still may raise interest rates in the short term they're aware that it's having an effect and inflation's moving in the right direction In Europe, the picture is a little bit more clouded. So, you know, in the UK, you saw inflation spike again last month, which is a slightly worrying kind of buck of the trend. In Europe, the headline inflation rate is running in the right direction down. But if you look at the underlying inflation, when you look at wages and things like this, that's still pretty persistently high. So this comes back to, you know, what's going to happen with interest rates in Europe we don't make predictions necessarily, but if you look at where we stand today and what the ECB are saying, they're really trying to tell markets: look, there could be a couple of more interest rate increases in the short term. So we should probably listen when they, when they say that. I don't think they're playing around.
0: So that, that's a good point, Michael, because there seems to be a disconnect at the moment between equity markets and what central banks are saying. You know, if, if you'd assume looking at history, whenever you see. Uh, Tightening or or, 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 uh, expectations of tightening, you you see weakness in equity markets. But at the moment, we're seeing, on one hand, central banks saying, "Look, we're going to have to hike rates again here." But at the same time, you're you're seeing equity markets um, push up, and at the same time, we have growth concerns. There's many predictions that there could be a recession in the in the in the US. Uh, In the UK, looks to be flat. You know, the, the numbers from. February did suggest that it was uh, we're going to avoid a recession in the first quarter, but may see one later on this year. So there is a a disconnect there between equity markets and the underlying macro picture. In your view, which which one snaps back in line with with the others before? I mean, do, do you think that we actually see a better Growth trajectory going forward, then, than we're looking at at the moment, or is it a case that equities are maybe getting a little bit ahead of themselves at the moment?
1: It's a great point about the disconnect. It was something that we we were discussing internally just during the week. You know, the short answer to your question there as to which which gives first. It's rare that growth increases um, to suit our needs rather than <laughs> equity markets just have to adjust and kind of get with reality. But I think there's a middle ground. I don't think it's completely black or white. Um, you know, you spoke, you just spoke about recession risk. I think recession risk is obviously worse in the UK than Europe at the moment, which, which is a strange turn of events, given how weak Europe's been for a couple of years now. But, you know, Europe to a large degree has kind of been teetering around the brink of recession for a couple of quarters now, and it's managed to avoid it. We're through the worst of the kind of energy crisis, you know, we're out of that winter, etc., which is giving investors some kind of optimism as well. So you can kind of see why investors are optimistic and why markets, like you know, we mentioned the FTSE is close to all time highs at the moment. Which, given all the risks, seems like a slightly strange move. I gave a webinar earlier this week, and we did a poll with um, our respondents around: Do they think that central banks in Europe will be able to cut rates this year? So already looking past the potential rate increases, looking at further out in the year and saying, okay are things going to be sufficiently better that they can actually cut rates again? And I was expecting a really mixed response. You know, I was expecting people to say, you know, half, half, maybe that people will think that, you know, they might not be able to some kind of a little bit of pessimism slash realism in there, but more than 80% of people came back and said, yeah, they think that um, central banks will be able to cut before the end of the year. And that's where the source of the danger is, as we see it, that, like you said markets are pretty highly valued at the moment you know we see about 2 or 3% upside only to our fair value estimates which which isn't crazy but it's you know it's still markets kind of generally been up with events but that's contingent on like you said that's contingent on economic conditions being good enough by the year end that central banks can actually cut rates again
0: Great, just one last point here on, on central banks and and the setup in markets. I mean my view would be that, you know, we're looking at interest rates now, um, you know, above four percent here in the in the UK and the United States after a decade of being next to zero. And there's an element in markets that they're looking forward and thinking, well there's a lot of room to cut rates at this point in time. So if we do see a central bank induced recession and downside in markets, that as soon as that happens, the central banks are just going to come out and cut rates and then provide support for equities again. I mean, is that a situation that you see happening?
1: I think it's a situation that central banks themselves and governments will be Um, Very eager to avoid. Um, We've learned, you know, we've learned some lessons. Central banks have been through the ringer really over the last 15 years. You've gone from a very, very stable period to, you know, the biggest financial crisis in 100 years. And then a pretty, in a period over the last three, four years, we've, we've had all these different geopolitical Um, crises and kind of global crises in terms of the pandemic and things like this, etc. So I think coming out of that, what the market needs now and what central banks are trying to provide is some kind of stability, which sounds a bit at odds with what they're doing in terms of how quickly and how materially they're raising rates. But they're doing it for a good reason, right? They're trying to bring inflation under control again and try to get us back to a reasonable level of growth without without kind of banking us into recession. So I think they're very aware of what the economy can take at the moment, and they're very concerned about that. But at the same time, they see inflation as a bigger concern, a bigger threat to the economy than raising, than rate rises. So that's why they're kind of pushing hard. So it's not to say that that situation couldn't happen. You know, things rarely move perfectly. We always, the pendulum always swings from, from one direction to the other direction completely and doesn't spend a lot of time in the center, which is where we'd like to be. But um, the way in which they're working it now, we just have to, to kind of hope that, uh, you know, we will get to that center point and avoid that recession
0: great thank you so let's take a, a more granular look if we may michael at europe now and, and look at individual company um, countries sorry individual countries uh, within europe we spoke about the ftse 100 of course in the uk ftse 100 is not a great representation of the the uk economy but when you when you're looking at individual markets around europe are there any that stand out for you as as offering good value at this point in time
1: um you know, I think if you look across Europe at the moment, the the countries are pretty much following the same the same pattern in terms of valuation. I'm not sure there's a huge differentiation between them, and that comes down to the fact that look, the main overarching factor driving this is around interest rates and the ECB controlling interest rates for the eurozone. Um, so so that kind of dictates that. I would say on top of that, if you want to go into individual kind of markets, um, then it relates more to the underlying exposures of those markets. So for if I look at the DAX, the German index, for example, it's highly exposed to manufacturing firms, the Mittelstand in Germany, that huge production area that pumps out kind of high tech industrial goods for a lot of the world. Um, is highly focused on that so then valuations are kind of follow that flow which actually if i look at industrial valuations across europe at the moment they're pretty highly valued as the market gets optimistic about that again but i think that the upshot of it is there's no real bargains across europe that valuation wise were are we're pretty close to being fairly valued across all the spaces it's more when you delve into sectors, can you find kind of bargains like this? But on a, a country basis, there doesn't seem to be any kind of obvious sweet spots.
0: Well, let, let's do that, Michael. Let's, if we may, go down in, in some of the sectors. You obviously mentioned their manufacturing as, as one sector stand out in Europe and obviously quite prominent there. But are, are there any sectors that your team have identified any opportunities in?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so the well, the first thing I'd say, just as a kind of a message, because well, I'm perhaps I'm being slightly kind of downbeat at the moment, saying there's not a whole lot of opportunities. <laughs> you know, we we come from a position where markets only a year and a half ago, a year ago, were trading maybe fifteen. Percent or more above where we thought they were fair, they thought they were valued. So the fact that we think markets are slightly undervalued now is actually a pretty decent position to be in. And if I look across the sector coverage that we have across Europe, every single sector is, is trading below where we think it's valued. So that's certainly a positive. But within that, there's more opportunities in some sectors than others. So consumer cyclical so that's that that um, sector that gives you the real cyclical exposure is the cheapest sector across Europe at the moment. So an interesting place to look from that perspective um, energy also despite the fact that it rose more than 20% last year we all we all saw the high energy prices we've all been paying higher gas. Um, electricity bills in our house for what feels like a long time now and paying more at the pump for petrol, etc. But despite that, energy actually has some good upside and we can go into that later as well. Um, and then lastly, the, the one the one that we saw that we haven't actually kind of been speaking about much lately because it had been, you know, up with events for a long time is around healthcare. So valuations in that are suddenly looking a little bit attractive as well. And given the defensive Qualities that some stocks within that sector have, it could be a particularly interesting place for investors for the in over the course of this year when inflation still remains very
0: high. Indeed. I mean that's that it's quite interesting that you mentioned the defensive nature of some of pharmaceuticals and, and to healthcare. As well as oil, I mean, I think that's one of the main reasons why we see the FTSE 100 trying to get back up to that eight thousand level. Uh, it's very much that defensive nature, looking at uh, names such as Astrazeneca and, of course, the uh, the oil companies. There, you know, UK investors will, will obviously know those two companies, BP and Shell, very well. But we talk about energy, Michael. I mean, which other sort of potential companies or markets around Europe have a good weighting? towards energy and have some companies in there which look particularly interesting
1: yeah so i think you know there's a couple of things going on in energy that are worth kind of highlighting as well um aside from just kind of higher oil prices which obviously helps slightly again by that opec announcement just a week ago about them curbing production but there's there is exciting stuff going on there right there's a whole energy transition which has been talked about for quite a while, but the change that we've seen more recently is the the oil majors in Europe at least are kind of putting their money where their mouth is. So they're allocating now a fifth of their capital budgets to renewable projects for the next number of years, which is like the first time they've actually put together kind of a strong, tangible commitment to this and differs massively from what we're seeing in the US. There, the companies, the oil majors, there are only putting in about half this level into renewable projects for the next number of years, and the bigger picture there is what you could have in five, ten years is suddenly a big gulf between the two, between the U.S. oil majors and the Europeans in terms of what kind of companies they are fundamentally and what it could mean for the European players and investors as well is that if you're looking to invest in renewable companies, the biggest renewable companies in 5, 10 years could be these oil majors that people kind of um, steered clear from uh, an ESG perspective for so long. So I think like that's one One area that's particularly interesting and from a valuation perspective, there's a discount as well. There's a kind of a a Gulf opened up as well. I'm talking about Gulfs here, but between the US and Europe in terms of valuation that US investors care less from an ESGs perspective than they do in Europe. And hence, European investors had kind of placed a discount on these kind of um, fossil fuel companies as they viewed them, which one is an opportunity itself in terms of valuation, but as they transition out of that and towards renewables, that discount will actually have to narrow at some point which is where we see an opportunity. So coming back to your question about the names, you know obviously the, the big names that we know in Europe, you mentioned BP, shell, Total, the French counterpart is another one. But in just just as a kind of a tangent to that as well, is there any other areas that we see within energy? and I think there is if you look at some of the service providers for energy firms um you know technip or companies like this what's happened when you have a cycle of energy prices being quite high for quite a long time is that capital projects get committed to and then these service companies who actually handle a lot of those capex projects their order books fill up for the next number of years they've got pretty good visibility on revenues then And hence, they're kind of a a safe bet for a number of years as well. So it's not just on the oil majors side. You see some opportunities in the kind of service sector as well there.
0: I just want to come back to the point that you made there, Michael, about how the oil majors could become major renewable companies in in the future. And of course, looking at uh, acquisitions that they're making and investments that they're making, it does look like that, that could be the case. But... From from when you're sitting, you know, when does this start to play through into earnings? Because the likes of BP and Shell have been talking about the investments in, uh, they're making in in uh, clean energy, for some time, and of course renewables. But the actual revenue generation from that is still very small. I mean, when does that become significant that they could actually then? Become considered a diversified energy company that that has a significant part of renewables within it.
1: It's a good question, and um, kind of feeds into that slight cynicism as well that I think investors should have when companies come out and suddenly claim that they're um, pro environment and they're they've changed their tune around what they're doing. Ultimately, it's a really longer term picture. So the the European integrated. You know they signed up for net zero, but they signed up for net zero for 2050. So it's a long way away. Um, I'm not sure if I'll still be working in finance at that <laughs> point. It's 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 so long away. So, but when okay, that's when they want to go net zero. But there's a big difference between net zero and there's a and when renewables have a significant kind of impact on their earnings. I think up to now they've been committing some resources towards um, renewables renewable energies but this this announcement more recently is the first kind of tangible commitment and material commitment so this is over the next kind of 5 years or so that they'll be investing heavily in this so you're probably talking the period between 5 and 10 years before you see that really come out in earnings and it be a significant impact so again you know you're dead right to question it and I don't think we're trying to sell this as their renewable companies tomorrow but I think it's a watch this space sort of story that it's important not to dismiss the companies from um, from a kind of a, a renewable perspective or from an ESG perspective. One of the, the big debates in you know the ESG space is around whether we should be investing in these companies in the first place. But the problem is if you don't invest in these companies, then... Um, you miss out on that transition into the renewables. So I think that's the kind of important thing to keep in mind that you're right, it could be kind of a 5, 10-year story, but you want to be on that journey rather than trying to join it right at the end when valuations have already adjusted.
0: Indeed. So it sounds as though those oil majors will, will continue to be the, the energy companies, uh, the major energy companies long into the future you know, due to the resources they've got there, the ability to make investments, they can transition as opposed to new entrants coming in to the markets. It's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. So to finish off now, Michael, I believe you've just released very recently the Q2 EMEA outlook. So we've obviously touched on a number of different points there. But is there anything within that outlook that we haven't discussed in detail that's worth bringing up?
1: I think, um, you know, we touched on the major kind of risks. The risks, well, the valuation, number one. Um, we spoke about how there's, you know, some some upside from here, but it's, it's pretty limited at this point, given how strong markets have rallied over the last number of years. One kind of... Um, area off that, if you will, is how attractive Europe looks relative to the rest of the world currently. It's fine to say, you know, this is what it looks like on an absolute basis, but how's the relative picture? And one of the things maybe that's interesting to highlight is that how things have changed over the last number of years, that if we look at our kind of price to fair value measure at the moment, how we look at how attractive something is, Europe's actually trading on a small premium than North America, which is the first time this has happened since the pandemic. You know, when the pandemic occurred, the U.S. closed down um, more slowly and kind of came out of the pandemic more quickly, and they've had a pretty clear path to growth since then. And a lot of investors have kind of pulled cash to move it to the U.S. to kind of account for this and to try to benefit from this. But what we're seeing now is a lot of this money seemingly kind of flowing back into Europe and valuations increasing as a result of that, As investors are suddenly getting more optimistic about Europe again, they're seeing economic conditions improve, economic indicators improve, um, inflation slowing, and suddenly they're thinking, okay, there could be more headroom in Europe to grow as and when the Ukraine war comes to an end and catalysts like this too. So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind, I think.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Mark. So just one last point when we're talking about relative values and we've touched on the FTSE 100 and I think people will be interested to hear your views on that. I mean, from where you're sitting, how how is the FTSE 100 valued relative to the rest of Europe at the moment? And, and what are the main concerns for that index compared to to, to Europe? And and of course, the opportunities for, for the FTSE 100 going forward.
1: Yeah, so... You know, relative to okay, I think the UK, generally speaking, um, is trading at a similar level to the rest of Europe on a you know a price to fair value or a P basis or something like this. It doesn't differ massively, and if I look at the P of Europe versus historics. Despite us touching on you know eight thousand almost again those, those kind of all time high figures, the actual underlying PE ratio for for the FTSE 100 isn't crazy. It's slightly below its like longer term average, um, which is which is an interesting kind of concept and shows you that earnings are still pretty strong within that, despite everything we've been reading about you know companies struggling and things like this over the last year. So I think valuation-wise, the FTSE is not in a bad place. I think it's just good to be aware of the dangers. Obviously, the FTSE is heavily exposed to sectors like you mentioned around healthcare, energy, um, materials, etc. So, you know, uh, okay, if we go into a recession, if if the worst kind of happens from that perspective and it turns out to be a deep recession, two out of three of those indexes are going to be hit very or two or three of those sectors materials and energy are going to be hit very hard in the next year so investors should be aware that okay while the footsie is not overvalued or anything like this from a PE perspective or doesn't look particularly expensive versus historicals there is a danger there that if things go wrong it could take a big hit
0: indeed indeed so Michael that's been fantastic and thank you for joining us this morning
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan. Great to speak with you.
0: Just as a final note to listeners, do check out the notes to this podcast, where you'll be able to find a link through to Morningstar's website, where you'll be able to download their outlook for Q2 2023. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was presented by Oanda, TradingView's most popular broker. Trade with Oanda and get one year subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments
0: you leave us in your chosen podcast player.